We are, indeed, um, starting a new series in the, the, the prophecy, the book of Zechariah. And uh, you see I'm putting out a lot of pieces of paper here, which I probably won't look at at all. But I want them here just in case. Um, this has been a lot of fun for me this week, um, preparing for this series. I've never really done a, a series on the book of Zechariah, and so... Um, and when I get into prophecy, I really I want to make sure that when I'm presenting things, that I'm presenting them properly. And um, so the, the beginning phase of preparation really takes a lot of time because I've got to go through the entire book and I've got to kind of break it down into where this, the messages are going to come from, what do I see as the outline, go out and check everybody else to make sure I'm not totally out in left field too far. And uh, at least, you know, if I'm in left field, maybe I'm playing short field or anyway, that I'm, you know, just kind of there someplace. So it's been a, a fun part, but what I shared in Sunday school, what's really been fun is that we've been going through Jeremiah um, in Ezekiel, and we did part of um, Zephaniah and, and Habakkuk as well, and then just finished Lamentations. And this is all blending together. So if you're not here in Sunday school, you're really missing it, because because what we did in Sunday school today blends together with what we're doing here. And it wasn't my doing. It's really kind of fun because that was from Jeremiah chapter 30. Next week, we'll be talking about Jeremiah 31. That's the new covenant um, in Sunday school. And so it kind of blends together. And so from the perspective of Jeremiah, the, the nation is just going into exile. So they first went into exile um, at the beginning of Zedekiah's reign. And only because um, Zedekiah was made the king by by um, Nebuchadnezzar, but then Zedekiah turns from, 11 years later, he turns away from Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar comes and he just totally wipes out Babylon, or Babylon, yeah, Jerusalem, just destroys the, the walls, destroys the temple, um, and so, you know, what you see on the screen isn't what was there, that's not Solomonic, that's after the fact, okay, and so, and so he comes and he destroys it all, and it's the utter desolation of Jerusalem, the Jews in their mind kept thinking, no, it won't happen to us. No, it won't happen to us because we're the people of God. It won't happen to us. It's the people of God. God isn't doing anything. He keeps saying this. He keeps, you know, all these false prophets like Jeremiah and and Isaiah, they keep saying that God's going to do something, but God's not doing something. But then they found out that what? Those guys that they didn't want to listen to were actually telling the truth and that disaster did come. Judgment did come. God, in his, in his um, faithfulness, in his justice, in his holiness, did bring the punishment to the city of Jerusalem and to his own house, the temple. And he allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. He allowed his temple to be destroyed. And so that's where we are in Jeremiah. At the end of Zedekiah's reign, Zedekiah has been deposed. Um, Jerusalem is now totally in exile. And, and the people are just mourning, total and mourning. But God, in the midst of all that, is going to is bringing the promise, is bringing the, the that that He is going to once again deal with Israel. That there's going to be a Jerusalem, there's going to be a temple. It's just an exciting thing. I mean, it's just amazing thing from the perspective of you know God is faithful throughout the ages, and that God will punish, but God will restore. In Zechariah, as we're going to see. Zechariah is, is being written um, in the time frame of Ezra chapter 5. Um, we'll talk about this in just a moment. In the, when Israel is coming back from Babylon, 
Cyrus has issued a decree that they can, they can return, they can come into the land. And so they're, they're kind of fuddling around um, building the temple and not getting it done. And there's been a lot of opposition from the outside. And finally, a, a letter is written to uh, Darius II, Darius the Great. Darius says they can do it. And so Haggai and Zechariah are being used by God to motivate the people to do what they're supposed to be doing, build the temple. But as we're going to see, a lot of his prophecy go beyond the moment. They go beyond this moment. In fact, he, he begins to rake him over the coals a little bit, and he's talking about the ultimate coming of Messiah and when the ultimate temple is going to be established. It's very exciting stuff. And so when you look at, again, I mentioned this in Sunday school, when we look at Ze- Zechariah, Zechariah ultimately is martyred. I mean, we're going we're gonna to read about all this stuff, and he's in this time of, of the return, and yet we're, Jesus refers to him as the blood of Zechariah and how they killed the prophets. Even this guy who is giving them great stuff of what God is going to do for their people. But I also want to submit to you, and this is one of the reasons why I, I had mentioned earlier about inviting a certain individual, because in, in the book of Zechariah, it is so clear, so clear who Yahweh is. Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh, Yahweh Ruach, how Yahweh it says that he is going to come. He personally is going to come, and he's going to dwell in the midst of the people. As we see, we're going to see in, in, in about nine or ten weeks from now, that it's Yahweh declares, and you will look upon me whom you have pierced. It's pretty clear stuff. That Yahweh's, I mean, throughout this, and this is one of the things that make me why the Jewish people don't like Zechariah so much. I don't know. Because, because he's talking about a Yahweh that they don't worship. But that you and I do. And so this is a fun book. I just want, now, parts of it as we go through it is going to seem like, wow, this is like prophecy. <laughs> well, guess what? It is. Okay, and so we're going to start there with a little bit of background real quick before we jump in. We're going to jump in just a little segment of it today, um, a little bit more of the background. But if, if you were here in Sunday school, you'll recognize some of these slides because we've talked about this as we've gone through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that the, the telescopic nature of prophecy is very important to understand. So here's Chuck and Karen. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're on one of their, 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 their multiple hikes. I don't know where they're at at this point. He could be who knows where. Anyways, and he's looking out there at Mount Denali. So he must be in Alaska, right? Anyways, so whatever. He's looking at this mount out here. And, um, and as he's looking at this mount, there's what? There's a whole lot of other things that he's looking at. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven ridges. Just real quick that he can see that stand between him and that mountain that he's looking at. But one thing that's also out there that he also notices is that, wow, guess what? There's what? There's even a mountain behind it. So maybe I'm not even looking at it. And so this is like prophecy. You're kind of looking out there, and, we're, and, and you think, I'm looking at this. But all of a sudden, there's all these other high points in history that are happening. But between every one of these high points, what's going on? Life's going on. So... Um, oops, I hit the wrong button. Let me go back to all those. So here, you can see where prophecies are telescopic in nature. Imagine that you're on a mountaintop looking through a 
telescope in the distance, you see another mountain tops, but you can't see, but you can't see the distance in between the mountains or what the, is in the valleys. We can see the high points in the future, but not what is in between them. Okay? So I'm going to give you another illustration, which is, is great as we went to um, the northwest. Okay? I was able to take a lot of pictures. I love the day of digital cameras, right? Because you can take tons of pictures. So what you'll note in this, in this picture okay, is you've got the Columbia River coming down along through here. Okay? And you've got um, some, some flat rock in here. I don't even know clue right now at this moment where I'm at. I, I did take a picture. Every time I was taking pictures, I took a picture on the, on the, airport, the airplane screen to know where I was. So I could go back and I could tell you where I was because I took a picture of where I was on it so I knew where I was. But, but the big point of this one is you're going to see two what? Two mountains. That's what's important about this picture. The one on the right is Mount Adams. The one on the left that you can barely see back there is Mount what? Rainier. Rainier. Good job. Okay, it's Mount Rainier. Okay, and so if I would have taken it just a second, a half second sooner, you would have almost not seen Mount Rainier because of Mount Adams blocking the, the distance. But what I want you to see in this picture is from this angle, we know life is happening. Does that make sense? There's a lot of things going on between us and Mount Adams. Make sense? I can see that there's all these kind of little hills and everything else. Can you see all these little ridges coming through here? That means that this is a mountain here by itself. Does that make sense? Okay. It's not as big as those things sticking way up. Those are way up. Those are really high points, aren't they? Those are high points of life, high points of history. Okay? And uh, remember that for just a moment from now. Okay? But down here, there are a lot of other points going on. There's low points. There's places where water's running. See this little valley coming along here? There's all life happening here. There's a lot of things that are going on even before I get to Mount Adams. But now, just a moment later, I mean, literally just a moment later, I'm what? I'm in the clouds, man. I haven't got a clue what's going on. All I can see is the what? The high points. Now, all of a sudden, that's what? Which one's that? Is it Mount Adams? Are you sure about that? You're not sure about that, are you? That is Mount Adams. That's Mount Rainier, okay? Which one looks further away? Mount Rainier. That's because it really is at that point. But, exactly, you've seen the picture before. But there's something else in this picture. You see it? There's a third mountain. That's Mount St. Helens. Oh, you didn't see that one before until I what? Pointed it out. That's prophecy. Get it? Sometimes things are hanging out there. Now, let me ask you a question. Which one's the closest? Mount St. Helens. But it looks the what? Furthest away, doesn't it? And when I'm looking over the clouds, and I'm looking at these high points, and that's what prophecy is. Think about it. When, when There's a whole lot of prophecies written about Jesus' coming, first coming. Okay? And we're going to see some of those as we go through the book of Zechariah. But there's a whole lot that's not written about his first coming. There's just the, the main point. Let me, let me point out an illustration to you. How many kids did Adam and Eve have? You say a lot. Can you prove that to me? Ah, you don't know he had a lot. You know it says that he had other sons and daughters. Because that's a good point. Because people always like to ask, where did what? Cain get his wife. Where did Cain get his wife? If, you, if all they had was, was um, Abel, Seth, Cain and Seth, then they only had three boys. Where did Cain get his wife from? Well, it says, and he had other sons and daughters. Well, why aren't they talked about? Because what? They're not important to the story. Get it? They're down there in be- between us and Adam or between Adam's and Rainier, but it's not pertinent to the account. It's not pertinent to the story. We're just told what? 
And they had other sons and daughters. There are other nations that are going on. I mean, there's life happening, but it's not recorded. I mean, we don't read about all the dynasties of the pharaohs in the Bible. What do we read about the dynasties of, quote-unquote? Israel and Judah. Why? Because they are what is important from the perspective of God's look of history. Are you tracking with me here? Okay. So as I read the Bible, I need to understand what I'm reading is, I'm reading God's picture of history. And at this point that Zechariah, along with Jeremiah and Isaiah and all that, but Zechariah specifically for this book, that he is writing, that he is speaking, and God is, Yahweh Sabaoth is giving him the words, they're all what? Future. They're kind of looking out there on this plane. And so as I look at this, now if I would have taken that picture again a whole lot earlier from a different angle, I would have at least two of these mountains in line. And I would think there was only, what, two mountains, but there were really three. Now, if I was a little bit further south, if the plane would have landed coming from the southern side coming in, I could get a picture with, what, four mountains. What mountain am I very close to? But at this point, but it's off the other side of the plane. Mount Hood. That's exactly right. In fact, when we went past Mount Hood, I swore I could have jumped out of the plane with a pair of skis on it and went skiing down the mountain slope. I mean, it was that close. Like, whoa! I looked out the other side of the plane. I was like, you know, oh, (laughs) we're too close. Anyways, so we were right there in Mount Hood. So, but the point is, then, if you're looking out that side of the plane, prophetically speaking, what do you see? Mount Hood. It's right there in front of you. Everything is consumed. So as we come through this, what I want to encourage you is, I kind of shared a little bit with Jeremiah a little bit, okay, that the people are living in a specific period of time. They're coming out of the exile, okay? When they hear the prophecies that Zechariah is going to be declaring, where are they at? Well, no, they're coming back into the land, okay? okay. But they're in that, that milieu, they're in that time period. That's how they're going to interpret things. Make sense? They're going to start to understand these things. And so unless some interpretation is given, and some of it is, okay, they're not starting to understand that. But then they start to understand, wait a second, this is what? This isn't for us right now. And that's where you start to get a little offended. I thought what? All this was going to play out for me, right now. Do you get it? And then all of a sudden you find out, no, it's still distance. Now, the exciting thing is, I really honestly believe that with the way prophecy is being fulfilled right now, I think we're, we're in those days. Now, whether it's going to be in the next 10 to 20 years or a day or two, or whether it's going to be in the next 100, 200, 300 years, I don't know. Okay? No man knows the what? Day or the hour. I just know that with the return of Israel to the land, as we start to talk about some of these things, okay, that with the, in Jeremiah, we talked about them a little bit in Jeremiah, with the way that Israel has returned to the land, how it's from being scattered, they're being brought back, how God has been multiplying and glorifying them um, despite the oppression of the, of the nations around them, that God's work is being fulfilled. And so I just want to encourage you as we come into this, this is an exciting book that, that for the most part, we may look at it going, oh man, I don't know, you know, this is Old Testament prophecy, but it is applicable to us today. So, first of all, what I want to do coming through this author of the book thing is, is to discuss this because this is important. I want to encourage you into 
to study the Bible. To don't just read, but to think about what you're reading. Okay? So it starts off, the, the, book of the, the book of Zechariah starts off with a statement. Zechariah, the son of Berechai, the son of Edo, the prophet. Okay? You should ask yourself, who is Edo? So I don't really care. It's Zechariah. Well, it's a big deal, because actually there are two Edos. Okay? There is the Edo, who's in Ezra chapter 5 and Nehemiah 12, okay? who Zechariah is the son of, but that Edo's not a what? He's not a prophet. And according to Zechariah 1, we read Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 29, 2 Chronicles 12 and 2 Chronicles 13, we read about Edo the prophet. There is Edo the prophet, who was a prophet and a seer during the days of Rechaboam and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So you have a dilemma. Who is this Zechariah? Now, you've got to understand this because the liberals understand this. And the liberals like to play this stuff up. And they like to say there's a, there, you've got a problem with the Bible. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, this doesn't make any sense because this Zechariah was during the days of Jeroboam, but he's talking like he's in the days of Ezra, and everybody just assumes he's in the days of Ezra. But look what it says, Edo the prophet. So who is he? Make sense? You may read right through that and you don't think about it, but it's an important thing. And so Wednesday nights, we're starting a new kids thing, right? And, and what's the motto? What's the motto for the kids program? It's in, wait, wait, yeah, not, not an adult. Come on, kiddos. Always be ready. Always be ready with what? Say again. Always be ready with an answer for the hope that's within you. Okay? So, to always be ready means that you're wanting to be one who learns the answers. Okay? So, so we got a question here. Who is this guy? Okay? Well, we've already read, and part of what Chuck has read, um, we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 7, and then chapter 7, verse 1, it was during the reign of Darius the Great. During the reign of Darius the Great. So, when did Darius the Great reign? Well, that was Darius the Second, Darius the Second, who was in Ezra chapter 5, okay? And so, so that puts it that clearly, again, the writer of this book is declaring that he believes that he's writing <laughs> during the days of Darius, right? But we still have the problem. What's the problem? Not which Darius, but again, I still have Edo the what? The prophet. Because in Ezra chapter 5, in, or in the book of Ezra, um, in the book of Nehemiah, Edo's not considered a prophet, never claimed to be a prophet. So what do I do with this fact? So I, I texted my, my, my local Hebrew um, interpreter, translator, and I said, so this is what I'm getting, what do you get? And so Gerard texts back and he says, well, literally from the Hebrew, it says, Zechariah, the son of Erechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. And I said, that's really interesting. What, what, what take do you get off of that? I mean, you know, who's the prophet? Is it Zechariah the prophet or is it Edo the prophet? And he says, well, first glance, you're going to have to say Edo's the prophet. He says, unless, and then he, he messed up. You didn't do it on purpose. You didn't say it's equal on purpose. Yeah, it was just, it was an accident. I love how God works, you know. And by accident, he says, you know, he meant to be talking about Zechariah, but he mentions Ezekiel. Unless you can see something about, I can't remember what he said about Ezekiel, and I went, bam, that's it. You're right. Oh, Lord, this is it. I didn't think about going out and seeing how else the, the Hebrew is being used 
And I know, you may not be the Hebrew guy, but anyways, but you can still do this, okay? How the Hebrew is being used in all these other ones. Anyways, the prominence of the lineage in Hebrew is amazing because in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Haggai chapter 1, we read about Ezekiel and Haggai both being priests, okay? But that they're a priest is secondary to who they are the son and grandson of. Their lineage is extremely important because their lineage proves who they are. Does that make sense? And so then the description of who they are is after the fact. So we come all the way back up here. Son of Edo, not Edo, the prophet. Rather, bringing into English, we would have said what? Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Okay? But from the perspective of the Jew, and again, remember when I talked about going through Matthew, we have to what? Always consider this from the perspective of the Jew. That's where I failed. Make sense? So it's so easy. So it's important to look at this. And so, again, the liberals who want to get rid of Israel and discount Israel totally, right? They're going to look at this from the English perspective, and they're going to say, ah, oh, that's not who it is anyway, da-da-da-da-da, okay? It is, okay? So we have good standing that this Zechariah was a Zechariah who did live in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah during the time of Darius the Great, or Darius the Second, okay? So very important. So the theme of the book comes from Zechariah 1.14 and Zechariah 8.2. You have this on your, on your summer note sheet. Um, it's the zeal of the Lord for Zion. Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, I am zealous for Jerusalem, for Zion, and for Zion with great zeal. Then in chapter 8, thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. So um, we'll talk about the zeal in, in a few moments, okay? But God has great zeal, and this is what you need to understand, right? Theme, the whole book, is God's zeal for Zion, okay? This isn't a, a political position, this isn't a religious position. Do you get it? This is God's position. God is emphatically saying it. I have great zeal. I am zealous with great zeal for Zion. Okay? So, quickly, the overview of the book. You can see that I've broken down into five words of Yahweh coming to him. Um, within the third, fourth, and fifth, there are clearly um, sub um, parts of the, of the outline as well that you'll see as we go to them. Okay, because there's numerous visions that are within there, but they're all contained within those specific words. So today we're going to be looking at the first word of Yahweh um, and then extending a little bit into the second word. Because as you read it, you can kind of see how things blend and themes blend together in here, okay? So, Yahweh's call for repentance. So, let's go to Zechariah 1 now. Let's quickly go through this. As we saw um, what Chuck read a little bit earlier, we read the fact that in verse 2, after we have the introduction, in verse 2, we read the fact that God is what? Angry? He's what? What does it say? He's very angry. You guys get that, don't you? I mean, there's a time when Dad's upset. There's a time when Dad's angry. Then there's a time what? He's really angry. And at the time, you kind of, you know, everybody moves away, right? And it could be about mom, you know, who knows? But the point is that Yahweh is very angry. Now, I don't know about you, but it's one thing for an earthly dad to be really angry. It's another thing for the, for the God who created the heavens and the earth, who can breathe the breath of life into you and then snuff it right back out, 
you know, who can really say, I brought you into the world and I can take you right back out, for him to be really angry. He's very angry with your fathers. Verse 3, though, I love it. Therefore. Do you know what therefore means? Therefore is therefore a reason, right? Say again? You figure out what it's there for. That's exactly right. You go back to what I just said, and as a result of what I just said, take this into account. Therefore, because I'm what? Really angry with your fathers. Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, return to me, says Yahweh Sabaoth, and I will return to you, says Yahweh Sabaoth. Do you stop for a moment? I don't have time to, to focus on this at this moment. Just other than a real quick little thing again as we're doing inductive study, coming through this thing. Who's speaking? No, no. Who's speaking? Not God, not Yahweh. Give me, give me the actual definite. Who's speaking? No, 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 no. You, I mean, you, you guys got it, kind of got it, but you're not giving it to me. Because he's very clear who's speaking. He says it three or four times right here. Yahweh Sabaoth. It's not just Yahweh. It's not just God. It's not Elohim. It's not Yahweh. It's Yahweh Sabaoth. Okay? This is extremely important. Again, God could define himself in however he wants to define himself. Sabaoth is the word hosts. It's the word that is used for the military group that's going out. Okay? So um, the host of Israel as they were going through the, the, the wilderness. Okay? So it's a great group. And so you had um, the host of the angels who were around Bethlehem. You know, there wasn't um, the, the choir. They were a heavenly host. They were an army that was surrounding Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And so Yahweh, Sabaoth, this is really kind of exciting to me because everything that he's going to say is based upon this fact that he is the one who is the commander-in-chief. Do you get it? And so he's the commander-in-chief of who? Of Israel. But Yahweh, Sabaoth, the Yahweh of hosts, who's he the... The commander-chief over? The armies of heaven. Exactly right. Okay? And, and, and we, as you're Jews now, you're, you're reading this, right? What have you seen the hosts of heaven do? Or what have you heard about them doing? Gil? Tell me, give me an opportunity. When did it happen? Okay, the, so, so not looking at the trees, but, but he, he saw the angels and he opened up the eyes of the servant, or opened up the eyes of his servant because there was more with us than against us. Okay, good. Those are the hosts of heaven. That's one. Give me some more. Okay, still not in the trees, but that's okay. But. That's David. That's David over the mulberry. That's David with the mulberry branches. Good. Okay. Yeah, I was. Go, I, I knew that. So I was going to come back to that one because I knew that it was David. But go to your Joshua. That was Gibeon, right? And they they, they attacked the the five nations that were attacking Gibeon, and they continued on. And that's when Joshua called out to God to do what? Stop the day, basically. Yeah, to keep the sun and the moon standing still. And and how did Israel, quote unquote, rout the enemy? Did they route the enemy? Did they route the enemy? How were the enemy routed? God didn't. Hailstorm. 
And I'm telling you, again, you haven't, some of you haven't heard the story. We came years ago from baseball. We were coming back from the Macon area. We went through the, uh, um, a um, tornado, the edge of the tornado. And I literally, I always thought people were exaggerating to this moment. I saw softball-sized hail. We are in my 15-passenger van, and I told all the guys in the van, everybody get to the middle. I really thought we were going to have broken windows. And I was blasting through this thing. I was going, I, people are stopping and are pulling over. I'm thinking, why? I mean, why do you, I mean, I would, I, who wants to sit there and be a, a target, you know? I'm just moving. And, um, and it looked, my van looked like a golf ball ever since then. I mean, I had dimples all over that thing from these. And all I could think of going through there was Joshua and, 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 the, and the enemies of God. And it says that more died from the hailstones than from the swords of Israel. How cool is that? I can imagine it now. You get hit by a softball-sized hailstone. I mean, that's that's pretty serious damage coming from a, you know, from a distance. Yeah, oof. You know, they always talk about how a penny dropped from the, the Empire State Building will kill you. Could you imagine a softball being thrown by an angel? I mean, I just I saw a picture, man. I mean, this is kind of cool. You know, you got the whole team that's up there, and God's opening up the storehouses. You know, because He asked Job, "Do you know where I keep the storehouse?" Clearly, He knew where it was, and He was holding it for a special day. And he gave Michael the key. And he said, hey, Michael, go bring out the balls. And they're all standing there. Yeah, baby, I got my ball. Hey, you get the guy, I get the guy on your right. Boom. And they're just sitting there. Bang, 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 bang. And the Philistines and all these guys are just all being wiped out, you know. More, more of the enemy died because of the hailstones. And so we could go on and on where there is account after account after account. I mean, the, the Red Sea being parted. I mean, all these things that are going on were the Yahweh Sabaoth brought them through, delivered them in mighty ways. And so now Yahweh Sabaoth is the one who's speaking to them, right? And he, and he, and, and he, and he speaks to them, and he says, Do not, I'm going between my pieces here. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached. Thus says, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, now turn from your evil ways, your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? In the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as Yahweh Sabaoth determined to do to us, According to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. The reason for the call, the call to repentance, was the fullness of God's anger. But even more so, it was because of what we just saw, the fulfillment of God's word. Can I get someone to go to Jeremiah 18 for me? Read Jeremiah 18, verses 11 to 17. Okay? And so, God had declared, and we can go to multiple places, but this one's just very clear where God, through his prophets, had been continually telling Israel, if you don't repent, if you don't return, if you don't spin around, if you don't change your ways, for us, if you don't change the way you think, and therefore change the way you act, I am bringing the disaster upon you. I am going to chasten you. I am going to punish you. It's going to happen in my justice. Somebody have that? Okay, Brian, I'm going to speak real loud. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your good doings good. 
And they said that that is hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans, and we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in paths and not on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Okay, so Yahweh calls to Israel. This is just one of the specific. If you've been in the Sunday school, you know that we've heard this same line over and over and over again, where God is calling out to his people to repent, 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 turn away. But what does it say right in the middle of that? It says, but they what? Probably about verse 13 or 14. Ask now among the Gentiles. No, no, above that. Um, and they said, and they, hopeless. And they said, oh, that's hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plan. So we'll walk according to our own plan. So Yahweh's saying, repent, repent, repent. Turn to me so I won't do this, what, I've, what I'm declaring I'm going to do to you. Return to me and I won't do it. And they said, ah, that's hopeless. We'll do what we want to do. So what did God do? What he said he'd do. Because God is always true to his word. He's faithful. He's faithful in his mercy. He's faithful in his justice. The wages of sin is death. It's not just death, like eternal damnation death. Do you realize that when Adam and Eve sinned, death came in in the three parts that they are, were body, soul, spirit? They didn't just die physically. The first death we see is what? Say again. Not spiritual. Not physical. How about social? Social. They knew they were naked and they became ashamed and they made clothing to cover themselves up, right? Now, that's not very clear because then we see then the next one, which we say potentially is the first one, the spiritual, because then they hide. Because God comes to walk in the garden as he normally do, did, but all of a sudden they heard him and they hid. Why did they hide? Because they had sin. There was now death in the relationship between them and God. God says, did you eat of the tree which I told you not to eat? And then again, it's confirmed what I said the first one. Adam says what? She did it. Threw her his wife under the bus. Blame shifting. Social death. It was just confirmed right there. What did you do, Eve? The serpent which you made made me do it. You know, Adam already did that. You know, the woman you made made me do it. Yeah, anyways, the blame always goes to who? To God. It's God's fault, right? And so, anyways, and so then they're kicked out of the garden so that they can't eat the tree of life. So, there is death that comes as a result of sin. It's not just before you get saved. 
Every time you sin, the principle still applies. It affects your relationships with others. It affects your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with others. And it's going to go against yourself. David talks about it in the Psalms. That his bones were just wasting away until he what? He confessed to God. And he was restored. Do you believe it? I mean, God is faithful. His word is true. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. God wants you to have life. God wants you to have joy. But we sin. We turn away from God. The fulfillment of God's word. The reason for the call is the fulfillment of God's word. The reciprocal nature of the call. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You can look up Malachi 3 and, and James 4, which come from this as well. But Yahweh says, if you return to me, then I will what? Return to you. God never left. The whole concept is, if you return to me, what are you going to find out? I'm here. If you return to me, if you draw near to God, James 4 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Why? He never left. He's always been there. Who left? You did. But there's this kind of this drawing thing then, that as I come toward him, it feels like, wow, he's getting closer to me. He's getting closer to me. Well, that's because you're getting closer to him, closer to him. And so this reciprocal nature of it, but then the response to the call was very exciting to me. Somebody read Lamentations 2.17. Because as we see here in, um, in Zechariah, verse, end of verse 6, So they returned and said, Just as Yahweh Sabaoth determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. They returned when they changed the way they thought. They changed the way they thought about God. And they made them change the course of their action. They realized they were going down I-20 the wrong way. They got off the exit and they came back on going the other way. Anybody have the Jeremiah passage? Or, I'm sorry, Limitations 2.17? The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. And he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversary. So this is right. This is Jeremiah speaking right after the destruction of Jerusalem. Zechariah is speaking, coming back. Okay, Jeremiah is speaking right after the destruction of Jerusalem, saying, Yahweh has done what he has said. It's here. But it took another 59 years for the people to finally say it. Do you get it? They're taken into exile, and they're woning. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But they're not willing to what? Repent. Hebrews talks about the difference between those who are mourning with a, with a worldly sorrow and those who are mourning with a godly sorrow. Those who have a worldly sorrow, how do they act? What's the purpose? What do they want? They feel sorry for themselves. I mean, ultimately, what do they want? They want relief from consequences. What about somebody with a godly sorrow? It leads to repentance, which means what? They change the way they think, ultimately leading to the change in the way they act. Somebody with worldly sorrow, once their consequences have changed, they don't want to change the way they act because they don't want to change the way they think. 
but somebody with godly sorrow changes the way they think and therefore changes the way they act. So for 59 years, they sat there and they wallowed in it because they wanted their consequences to change. Because we're going to see they have all these fast days, okay, which we're not going to talk about today. I think next week we, we look about that, I think, next week. Anyways, they have these fast days where they're fasting for the, because of the destruction of Jerusalem, where they're moaning and moaning, uh, wailing. And Yahweh says to them, really? 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 Come on. Did you, did you, were you fasting for me? No, come on. You weren't fasting for me. And so we have our week of prayer and fasting coming up at the end of this month. And I challenge you as we look toward this. You know, are we going to do this as a, as a ritual? Or are we really seeking God's face? Do we individually want to grow in his grace and knowledge? Do we want to be conformed to his image and likeness? So that as an assembly, as we come together, that we are just magnifying the Lord in this neighborhood and in this whole community and city. That's my desire. I'd love to see us burning so bright as a body of believers that God gets the glory. That is not a matter of God, man, just give us this extra property or God build us a nicer building or God do this for us. It's not about us. It's about God. And that God gets glorified. Regardless of what happens with us. Yahweh's call for repentance. But along with it, he gives them this promise of mercy. This is too cold. Where he says to them, he says, but you know, but if you turn, I'll turn back to you. And I, I got to find mine here. I, so for those who, who don't come to the, the Sunday school, I do all my, my prophets as I'm studying my prophets. Everything is color coded, you know, and this will become even more colored as we go. So I've got my own little text here as I, I do it. But as he, he begins to, um, in the second half of this, as he begins to speak, I'm going to skip the part of the, the, the vision of the horses. We'll come back to that next week, okay? Verse 12, I'm going to pick it up right there in the middle of that. It says, Then the angel of Yahweh answered and said, Oh, Yahweh Sabaoth, how long will you not have racham, mercy, compassion, on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years. See, looking back at the 70 years. And Yahweh answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to, said to me, proclaim, saying, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped but with evil intent. I was angry, but they furthered the destruction is what you have in New American Standard and the ESV. But the idea is, is the evil. The word is for evil. But they were exceedingly evil. I was angry, but they made it, I mean, they were even more evil. They made it worse. I mean, they just, they, they looked at me and said, yeah, bring it on. And so he said, okay, fine, I will. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I am returning to Jerusalem with Rechum, with mercy. My house shall be built, and it says Yahweh Sabaoth, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, my city shall again spread out through prosperity, and Yahweh again will again comfort Zion, and will again choose Jerusalem. So, the zeal for Jerusalem, God's promise for, for mercy. He says, look, if you return to me, I will return to you. And I will have compassion and mercy upon you. Oh, I can't turn to God. God's just, man, 
I mean, just think how angry he's been at me. I mean, no way. If I come back to God, he's going to beat me up. God says, no. I'm angry because of what you, how you're acting. But I promise you, if you come back, it's going to be like the prodigal when the prodigal came back to me. How did I, how did I treat the prodigal when he came back? I came running out with my arms wide open, not with my backhand going toward him. And I gave him that hug. And I put on him the robe and I put a ring on his finger and I restored him to his place. That's how I want to love you. That's his compassion. That's his mercy. But before that can happen, we have to be willing to repent. Look what it's, this is kind of interesting. His anger with the nations. Turn with me to Psalm 123. It's only four verses long. Psalm 123. Psalm 123, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God, until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Yahweh, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. I think that was written at the same time as this is written. Yahweh is angered with the nations. The people are crying out for his, his chesed and his rachum to, to be applied to them. But in it, there is one distinctive thing that is driving Yahweh crazy. And it's the ease of the nations. The ease of the nations. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6. Just before Amos, if that helps you. Hosea 6, the first eight verses. Come and let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of Yahweh. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and a former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that go forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men, like men, they transgressed a covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. God was upset with his people because 
his people started following the ways of the nations. The nations were a nation's, oh, sorry, at ease. I thought I had a little comment here in it. They were a nation at ease. They, they were oppressing Israel. Oppressing Israel. And, and it didn't bother them at all. It didn't bother them at all. In fact, in the midst of oppressing Israel, they began to live with great um, prosperity. Prosperity. I want to step back for a second because this is important as we talk about prophecy. It's great. It's all good. Daniel, the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar has the vision, remember the vision he has? And then he can't understand it, but Daniel comes and he translates it for him. What, what's, what's the vision of? Say again? Somebody. It's, a, it's an image. It's an image, right? It, it's a statue. Good. And the head was of gold. Then the, the arms were, and the chest were silver. The, the, the waist and the, the thighs were bronze. The legs were iron, and then the feet were a, good, a mixture of, of iron and clay. Daniel then gives them the, the, the interpretation of it, right? It talks about the different um, kingdoms that were going to come, and he says that you, O king, are the what? You're the head. You're the gold, okay? But then after you is going to come a what? An inferior one, okay? But we read then, not just from that, but also then in Daniel chapter 8 and elsewhere, that there's a multiple visions, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, that come and give us more clarity to who those, those nations are, okay? So we have Babylon, then we have Medo-Persia, two arms, okay? Then we have Greece, which ran with power. Then we had the Rome, which was the iron, and then we're still waiting for the iron and clay mixture. Does it make sense? Okay, now, in that, there is a continuity. There is one statue. There are not five statues. There is one statue. And there is a continuity then it goes through each of those kingdoms. It's really an amazing thing if you, if you look at it. There is a continuity of religion that goes through. So all the way from the Tower of Babel, with Babylon coming all the way through, you have Ishtar, who was the queen of heaven, who gives birth to Temuz, okay, who is the sun god. okay, And you can play that one all the way out through Medo-Persia into um, through Assyria, then even into Greece, and then into Rome, and into Christian mythology. You say Christian mythology, but it's Roman, Roman, uh, Romanism, which has Mary, who is in, in the catechisms, is called the Queen of Heaven, and she is the mother of God. Okay, And so whenever, like at Christmas time, you watch when you come, look at Christmas cards, you're going to see Christmas cards, and they're going to have a little glow around Mary and a little glow around jo- uh, not Joseph, Jesus but not one around Joseph. There's not one around Joseph. Why? Because that's the son, S-U-N. That's the son. Because um, um, Roman Emperor, first Pope. Constantine. Constantine was up in, in the Bretons. He was up in Britain, okay, um, when his dad was the, 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 the ruler up there, and he learned a lot of stuff, and he was... He was he met the Christians and, and understood the gospel at that point. And he comes and he winds up becoming the, 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 the emperor, the Caesar. And so he realizes that his nation is divided between those who worship the S-O-N and those who worship the S-U-N. And so he blends them together. He blends them together into the festival of Saturnalia, which we call the Christ Mass. 
Saturnalia happened to happen at the end of December, December 25th. Now, I'm not trying to push down on Christmas, okay? But this is all for real stuff, okay? It's all, I mean, it's just amazing stuff how it all plays out into this. And so, so the religion comes on through. But I submit to you that the, the um, financial systems, if you would, played on through as well. And as we talked about in Jeremiah today, that the, the Jews had, had went to Babylon and they gleaned, they learned that commerce, that, that, that way of commerce, and they absorbed it and made it their own. And so now, honestly, when people think about Jewish people, they always think about Jewish people as being what? Bankers, Bankers and rich people. It wasn't that way well, in the days of David, I promise you. That wasn't what they looked at the Jewish people for. Okay? And so they absorbed that. They, they took that, that concept. That's why I think Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you can't serve the God of this world, mammon, or, or the true God. You have to choose which one you want. You're either going to go after materialism or you're going to go after God. Which one are you going to seek? And so the nations were at ease. They were just at ease. They didn't care about anything. They were, they were living in this, this, this wealth kind of thing. This, this, and, and, and it just made, drove God crazy because in their wealth, in their prosperity, in everything that they, they had, what did they do then? What does he say to them? I was angry, but then you what? You made it worse. Okay? And what in New King James... What's the word that's being used? Because it's, it's, it's actually the literal word. The New American Standard and the ESV say that you further the disaster, or how to say you further the destruction. Yeah, but actually the word in the Hebrew is ra'ah, which is the word for evil. Evil. Your evil can be so great. So think back to the, to the flood. To, that God looked upon man and he knew he had to destroy them because every thought and intent of their heart was only for evil continually. Whenever we are at ease, we're not thinking about God. We only think about ourselves. We want what we want. We don't want. We don't necessarily want what God wants. I'm not saying we got to live. I mean, there's, I told Marcia, I said, I'm just struggling with um, this, this balance. I'm trying to look for a word here, you know, because the balance between this, like, asceticism, this, this um, setting yourself aside and this affliction, you know, this kind of thing. And then and you can see it on, on the, the, um, the questions. We'll talk about them tonight at the bottom of your sermon note sheet. I think I wrote it there, wherever I have that at. Um, what or where is the balance between a full self-denying commitment to the Lord and enjoying his blessing in the land. It's a real battle. I mean, how do, you, how do you balance this thing out, right? Because as Americans, we struggle with being at ease. And so, are you living a life of ease, seeking to please yourself or truly seeking to please God? I mean, I, I'm telling you, it's just a struggle in my own heart. I mean, I, I, why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do? I find that there's this war within me. And it boils down to really this. Who do I want to please? I mean, on a, on a normal, every-moment basis, am I doing stuff to please me or please God? And I go, oh, I'm pleasing God. Really? Really? I mean, really. Whether you eat or drink, do all what? To the glory of God. So, okay, you're going to go home right now. We're going to be done. We're going to go home and eat. Are you eating to the glory of God? Or are you only eating because you like it? I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I, there's a balance here. It's a struggle for me. But is the glory of God, is seeking God the forefront of my mind? Or have I become so much like the world that I'm living a life of ease? 
and I don't even see it. That's the worst part. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourself. Do you truly believe that God will deal with our sins? Or are we like Israel? He's not, ah, come on. He's worried about the big ones. I mean, whoa, people are, they're important babies. Now, those are the ones he's going after. He doesn't care about me breaking the speed limit. He doesn't care about me telling a, a white fly. He doesn't care about, he doesn't care about, he's really worried about the biggies. Is he? The wages of sin is death. What are you doing to build your relationship with God? You say, where does that come from? Well, the reality is, God has a zeal. And he says, if you return to me, then what? I'll return to you. So what are you doing to build your relationship with God? What are you doing to restore the relationship? What are you, what are you, are you doing it? In the end, the same question. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that your word is true. Over the thousands of years, Lord, your word has not changed. Your love for Israel has always remained. And as you declared through Jeremiah, Lord, only if we can destroy the the covenants that you've made with the sun, the moon, and the stars, Lord, can we destroy the covenant that you've made with Israel. Lord, that same promise goes to us, and we are so excited about that, Lord, that just as you have restored Israel as a nation, just as you will revive, as you have revived her, and you will restore her to power when Christ comes and he reigns um, in Jerusalem for the thousand years, Lord, so you will not change what you have uttered to us. You are preparing a place for us. God, I'm so excited about that. I pray that you would help us to live as those who really believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.